that's a film. Any sort of like documentarian trick is you do the like chit chat and you're like, mm-hmm. So you're in the middle of talking oh, about yes. Mr. Darcy and Pemberley. So we're just not going to tell you you've started. This will be a funny way to right. start the episode. You're already, you're I do going. something like, welcome <laughs> <laughs> to A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. I'm Roddy. And today we are talking about Twice Told Tales, retellings of mythology Shakespearean plays, and beyond. There have been dozens upon dozens of published books of modern fiction by contemporary authors that are actually reimaginings of century-old stories, fables, or myths. Joining me today is Sarah Bowman, adult services librarian. Thanks for having me. And Mary Graham, youth services librarian. Hello, hello. Now let's start a conversation that will surely launch a thousand ships. Oh, Jeffrey. (laughs) Please know that I was tricked into that (laughs) innocent party (laughs) i was literally tricked into that um so where would we like to start would we like to just jump into greek myths and retellings because jeff fed us a lie (laughs) i would like to start by saying that i think it's very funny that whenever i'm on the pod it's always like hello other librarian first name last name and then hello mary graham which is not my last name. So, oh, yeah. I just think it's okay. funny. I mean, it sounds totally cool, but I'm like, that's so. What is my last name? Wouldn't you like to know? Mm-hmm. So. We should hunt for it. Just try to figure it out. You're welcome, Sarah. We've been innocent bystanders <laughs> to two absolutely heinous puns from two separate people in a very small recording studio, and I think that's very brave of us. Might not be the last one. Either. <laughs> I doubt it. (laughs) We'll see. I'm sleep deprived. So (laughs) there is something happening in the publishing world, in the writer's mind world, where everybody wants to go back and retell Greek myths and just anything to do with classic Greek literature. Somebody is working on a retelling right now. It's the Madeline Miller effect. Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah. And... You know, she's in good company with like Pat Barker and Margaret George, who was just like one of the leading people in like, I'm going to do retellings in like historical fiction. Um, she's done Helen of Troy. She did a Cleopatra book. Who else did she do? I feel like one of the tutors. Like... This is a new author for me. Oh, really? Yes. Oh. But I do love Pat Barker. <laughs> yeah. I have loved her World War One historic fiction for a long time. Which she's won like a Booker Prize for, mm-hmm. but this the her Women of Troy series is new, mm-hmm. and I have yet to jump into that. But I'm really excited. Yeah, I'm definitely read, having a moment. I read the Silence of the Girls, which is basically, you know, when Odysseus gets home and he commits a lot of murder. Um, I do. Some of the people murdered were women who were working in his house if that's how you want to put it another terminology is they were slaves in his household and the what he says is that they got a little too um comfortable with the suitors there um that's not the official like homeric translation but that's like what's implied and so he kills them as punishment for their trespasses is this why a couple of weeks ago you came up to me and said so Imagine you've been away from home for 20 years. And I said, is this an Odyssey question? And then it was an Odyssey question. And you were basically like, would you murder everyone you came across? And I said, RIP to Odysseus, but I'm different. And you said, but he does have PTSD. And I was like, ooh, 
a fair point. But, but that sounds like a very interesting book. Yes, no. And to be clear, I really like the Odyssey. I like Odysseus. He's my favorite from that whole situation. But he's a super asshole. Excuse my life. I think this is the first time I've cursed on the pod. But he's kind of the worst. So I say that because I like villains. I'm just calling back. I do not think he's a good person. Uh, but yeah, I have a lot of questions about him and his motivations. And Pat Barker and her book just made me want to ask a lot more because why? Why did he do that? <laughs> well, and I find that interesting because like most of the notes that I made are not about Greek retellings because like I've read Song of Achilles, I've read Circe. I loved both of them. Mm-hmm. I know people have very strong and often differing opinions about Madeline Miller. Fine. But I am a little tired of the same ones mm-hmm. told over and over again. So something like that, I'm like, ooh, okay, mm-hmm. that's interesting to me. Or I don't know, like everything that happens to like all of those women after the fall of Troy, I yes. feel like isn't given a lot of discussion. Like I would read a book about that. But... You would really like a thousand ships then. Okay. I've been wondering <laughs> yes. if that should be on my TBR. Yes. Okay. A thousand ships by Natalie Haynes. It's a really good book. It's also a very sad book, fair warning. And it is told from the perspectives of any woman tangentially related to the Trojan War, including a chapter that is dedicated entirely to the perspective of Gaia. So that's real fun. It was a beautiful book. I don't know if I'm going to reread it, though, because I was big sad after I was finished with it. Well, here is my question. And this kind of goes, I guess, for all of the retellings that we're going to talk mm-hmm. about in this podcast, but do you think you would have the same amount of enjoyment for those books if you were not familiar with the original? Like how much do you have to know about the original stories mm-hmm. to enjoy the retellings? That That's a is great, a great question. question. I actually picked, oh no, I didn't. I just slightly influenced someone to pick <laughs> a thousand ships for a book club. And I really liked it because, you know, that's my whole wheelhouse. But there were a few other people in the book club who were like, yeah, this was beautifully written, but I couldn't get into it. I was confused. Who are all these people? And I was just like, you know what? That's fair. Who are all these people? (laughs) There's so many. (laughs) And yeah, no, I think that's a really good question. And I think it's a slightly different question than, for example, like an adaptation in a different medium. So often, like, I come to, like, I enjoy some of the real doorstoppers of of European literature, War and Peace, Les Miserables. Mm -hmm. I came to both of those after loving the Broadway musicals that are based on them. And so having seen Les Miserables, having seen Natasha Pierre in The Great Comet of 1812, not having read the books didn't matter at all. And that added this, like, extra layer of pleasure to reading the big books books where it's like oh okay like you get so much more than they can give you in like a a stage presentation but thinking about like a retelling I'm looking at all the retellings on my list and I'm like actually some of these like I don't think would be as good or as enjoyable if I if I hadn't like read what they're referencing because it's not like a straight up adaptation like I'm trying to think of how to differentiate between the two and I feel like I can't quite i feel like when i think about adaptation i think about like a different medium Mm, uh, or a different like style so you know a a book gets adapted to a film or gets adapted to a stage play or something like that whereas like i'm looking at a list of books based on other books or sometimes books based on plays Mm -hmm. but 
And so maybe this, you know, new wave of like retellings, especially I think like the the hot Greek mythology moment, like is it a is it the gateway drug to like people discovering or rediscovering <laughs> the original stories? Oh my god. That's a good question. That is really good. I hope so. I, I It's a hard question for me because, like, I'm looking at my list and I'm just like, okay, I have too, like, there's too much frame of reference that I have going into a lot of these things because that's always been something that I've been interested in. So I'm like, oh, I don't know. And I'm just like, if there is, well, now I'm thinking about, like, cultures where there would be retellings where I might not know so much or, like, influence where I would not know too much about it and the first thing that comes to mind is my one of my favorite books which is gods of jaded shadow yep one of my favorite watches dear listeners i can't i was wondering who was gonna get to it first because it's on my list too it is at the top of my list and i went into it with like honestly very little frame of reference like there are some things that I picked up from a children's movie that will not be named because it does not do a very good job of representing that culture and things like that like things I picked up but I really knew so little and that book is once again like one of my absolute favorite books this is kind of a perfect segue though but also because it's just always a good time to talk about this book because same I really knew nothing about the mythological structure that underlies that book But very early on, I picked up on like, oh, this is a death in the maiden story, Mm -hmm. which I was looking up that story as like a narrative framework because I thought it was more of a tale type than it actually is. It turns out the phrase death in the maiden is actually based on the um, the image motif of the das macabre. So like a woman dancing with a skeleton Mm -hmm. to uh, remind us that we all, including you, dear listener, will die someday. Uh, and and people, but people like looked at these images and were like, "Oh, it's death dancing with a maiden." So mm-hmm. like that's a whole that's a whole thing because uh, yet gods of Jaden's shadow is that you have literally like the god of death and a maiden who is somehow involved slash in love question mark with him, and that ties into one of my other favorite favorite like series that I put on here, which is the Winter Night trilogy by Catherine Arden, which is not a necessarily straight up retelling of Russian fairy tales. However, every book does begin with someone telling a classic Russian fairy tale that has a lot of implications for the rest of the book. Uh, And that is also involves sort of a a lord of death and a young woman. Um, And I don't know what it is about that in particular, but like any death in the maiden thing, give give it to me. Yeah. I want it, please. I'm pretty much there, too. I love these like niche themes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Well, because, you know, Jeff, Jeff, who's losing his mind laughing over in the corner, you know, sent us the email of like for like brainstorming for this and was like, oh, think about your favorite mythological structures. And I was like, you know, I was a Greek myth kid, but I feel like I've kind of passed out of that Mm -hmm. phase. But like. What do I keep coming back to? And it turns out I'm a sucker for Death and the Maiden. No, and also for people going into the underworld and then coming back. Yes. <laughs> Some good old katabasis. Yes. Wow. I've learned or katabasis. so much about myself. I don't know how to say Greek. Don't ask me. <laughs> mm-hmm. But like Cupid and Psyche, Orpheus and Eurydice, like, hold on. I'm running to the underworld. Does anyone want anything? Yeah. Like, I just, again, I'm like, ooh, are they going to get out again? And, like, someone always does, or it wouldn't be Katabasis, but... Yeah, no, and it's really funny because, like, (laughs) Arvius and Eurydice actually came to from an adaptation via opera, 
which is why I was walking around saying you're a DJ for like years because it was Italian. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize I was like butchering (laughs) that pronunciation. But yeah, that was a story that I was just like, oh, because, you know, we've talked about plays and I know most people would be more familiar with like Hades Town right now, which is excellent. I got to see it. I cried so much. It was beautiful. Um, But, you know, the stage as a way of adaptation, films, there's so many, so many films we could talk about right now. (sighs) I hate to be the like one negative uh, voice on this. The Greek retellings are, and even like the Norse or Mm -hmm. this Death and the Maiden, like I read Gods of Jade and Shadow and I liked it. Mm Mm-hmm. But I am not a fantasy reader, and Mm. I do not particularly enjoy world building. Got it. Where it takes the center stage. Mm -hmm. And to me, there's too much of that. Like, I read Cersei, and I was like, I don't, I'm not into all these (laughs) world building. That's so interesting to me, because I have very, I like fantasy, but I have very little patience for world building. And there are books that I have had friends try to get me to read for years and years, and I'm like, if I have to learn a whole new money and religious system that's going to be explained to me in like <laughs> paragraphs and paragraphs of exposition. I'm like, Zayns, I love you. And I'm not reading these books. Sorry. Um, and so I think that kind of what does it for me about a book like Cersei is that like fifth grade Mary Graham tucked enough mythological knowledge in her mind that is somehow still there. Uh, and I've been like drawing on that without feeling like the book had to do that much work, but like that's a criticism that I completely sympathize with. Yeah. And I think that I appreciate more of the like Austin Shakespeare mm-hmm. adaptations oh, and retellings. Can't wait, can't wait to hear because about Because then we're dealing with characters and we're dealing with like motivations and we're dealing with interpersonal relationships. Mm-hmm. And like that's my jam. Yes. Right. Um, like give me a whole book where not a lot happens, but like I'm so curious. People have relationship to hear what austin adaptations have worked for you because there are a lot of shakespeare adaptations i love i actually wrote my undergraduate thesis on uh adaptations of shakespeare plays in young adult novels um so uh thanks for hiring me friendel area district library <laughs> which there will be a complete reading of exactly of right i will i will give you my dissertation reading list but i i tried and tried to think of an Austin retelling, and I love Jane Austen, uh, if I had come across an Austin retelling, then I was like, yeah. And I haven't. So I'm interested to hear... Have you read Eligible by Curtis Sutton? I have heard extremely mixed things about Eligible, so I think I have to read it now to form my own opinions. That is my favorite, and I talked about it in the last episode that (laughs) I was on when we talked about classics, and I think Cricket read it after Mm -hmm. that, and she really enjoyed it. Um, It's a modern day Pride and Prejudice set in Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. And again, I think what works really well is the characters and the characters' relationships with each other, this Mm -hmm. big family. Yeah. And then like these, you know, family relationships, personal relationships, romantic relationships. I thought it was funny. Mm -hmm. Um, I really, really enjoyed it. What I really want to see in the Austin adaptation realm, Northanger Abbey. Oh my God, everyone. Mm -hmm. Northanger (laughs) Abbey is sitting there. With its goth nerd weird girl Catherine Moreland, the queen of my heart, honestly, just begging for her. an update <laughs> as like a vampire obsessed fangirl. Like, right. please, 
Why is Honestly, talking about this? <laughs> actually, no one, no one write this. I will. I've never finished. <laughs> yes. I've never finished a long form piece of fiction in my life, but I will just do it. I have to do Let everything that myself. Be your life's work, please, because <laughs> I want to read it. Someone in publishing, call me. Um, <laughs> but I, I think that that's because uh, you know we get there's there's a lot of also YA adaptations of various Austin stuff, and Pride and Prejudice comes up a lot. And I think the tricky thing, having just listened to that book on audio again, is that to get a really good adaptation of it, like there's so much there. It's mm-hmm. not just about like two people who don't like each other the first time they meet. It's also got to be about that big family and about mm-hmm. the economics of it all. And like, you know, I thought the Lizzie Bennett diaries did a really good job of that. Although of course oh, that is not that's the book. My list <laughs> yeah. Like I would say that that's probably my favorite. Oh, but Clueless does exist. Yes. I was Clueless actually waiting for this to come up. <laughs> yes. Because we got to talk about those movie adaptations. What was so- it about the 90s that loved a Shakespeare and Austin teen movie? And what do we have to do to bring that back? It was something in the water. I have like been thinking about this for years <laughs> because they are so good. How dare 10 Things I Hate About You make the taming of the shrew so good? It made it so good. Yes, because Shrew is one of those plays that I watch and I'm like, oh, I don't think we should do this one anymore. No, no like it tricky. really, it really truly is spousal gaslighting and yeah. a comedy by Mr. William Shakespeare. And 10 Things I Hate About You made me like, I was like, oh, I'm so like, I love that movie. I'm probably going to watch it now that I'm talking about it so much. Can I confess something? You've never seen it. I've never seen oh 10 Things God. I Hate About You, and I've never seen She's the Man. Huh. And I don't know how I've made it this far in my life. Jeff, <laughs> that's going to have to, we're going to have to do like a a librarian movie night, Ten Shakespeare I hate about you. something. This, Ann Tyler wrote a Taming of the Shrew retelling called Vinegar Girl. Mm. And it's very, very good. Mm-hmm. The end part where she has the, the big speech, mm-hmm. where she comes around to not being so shrewish yeah. anymore didn't work for me. Mm-hmm. Like the whole book worked and that end scene didn't mm-hmm. work. And 10 Things I Hate, I hate About You, mm-hmm. sorry to spoil, the end scene the I think works. Listen, <laughs> I love this movie so much. I'm not going to recite the poem because it would make me cry Um, because I love that part. So it's such a good movie. It's so good. Mary Graham, we got to fix this. I know. I'm sorry. You got to watch this. I can like, give or take what was the other one she's the she's man. a man yeah i've seen that like it's yeah. fun it's yeah. there but like 10 things i hate about you is crucial yeah. also <laughs> what was it about julia styles in particular because wasn't she also an o yes i feel like was. they were just like we're doing a shakespeare adaptation we know who we need to call <laughs> yes and that o was a fellow with high school basketball yeah if anyone's wondering so who else is I think that was Josh Hartnett and like Mackay Pfeiffer in that movie oh um, my god I think so my, I might 90s heartthrobs yeah so I am just low-key obsessed with Shakespeare in teen culture because yes. like truly the I mean the biggest examples are those films I think but people are still publishing YA novels <laughs> that have to do so one of like the very like starred circled a million times books on my list is called Nothing Happened by Molly Booth mm-hmm. which is much ado about nothing with teenagers at summer camp oh exactly exactly really? and it's gay 
I'm writing it down right now. Yes. Because it's called Nothing Happened by Molly, Mo- Molly Booth. And I was lucky enough to get to hear her talk at the Boston Book Festival when this book came out. And she was talking about how to take some of the toxic masculinity out of Much Ado. Because the only disappointing thing about Much Ado About Nothing is that Hero marries Claudio at the mm-hmm. end when, in fact, like everyone should get to line up and punch him in the face. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she she said to herself, like, how can I have the Hero and Claudio characters like be a pairing that you feel good about by the end of the book? And so she made Claudio a woman and made, like, part of this is, like, her, like, working out some of her internalized misogyny and homophobia about about herself in a way that she does in a i found it a satisfying ending um but i was and also the, like the beatrice and benedict characters and plot are done extremely well but just like okay. summer camp because that's the only place that i can think of where you can put teenagers that is as believably chaotic <laughs> as much to do about nothing <laughs> is uh it's a very good modern day it was i was just so impressed by it um and now she is working on a series of graphic novels uh that is other shakespeare plots adapted in a high school so i think 12th night is the first one so like clearly there is like publishers wouldn't keep giving you contracts for it if people Mm -hmm. weren't gonna clamor um, uh, one of my first retellings, reimaginings that I like can remember purposefully reading uh, was called Ophelia, and it's by an author named Lisa Klein. Mm-hmm. It's like it's basically how do I want to put this? It's Hamlet, but like, what if Ophelia wasn't used as like you know a stepping stone for this guy on his like journey for revenge? It's like, what if she had some autonomy and more choice? And like, what if she was also playing the political games that were going on at the same time? And I haven't read this since like middle or high school. I know I used to reread it a few times. It was a comfort book for me, which now that I'm thinking about how it goes, I'm like, why was that my comfort book? Because Shakespeare's comforting. Yeah. (laughs) But it was really good at the time. And I really enjoyed it. And yeah, it was a big favorite of mine. There was definitely a moment. Because uh, the same author, I think, wrote Lady Macbeth's Daughter. Mm. Caroline Cooney had another book ra- based on Macbeth. Like, there was a a, a moment, and I want to say those are, like, the early 2000s, mm-hmm. where you had, sh- like, Shakespeare, like, not modern updates, but, like, the fleshing out of the actual play itself, um, which I, I thought was interesting when I was doing all this research for this giant paper. It was interesting to see the trend move from will sort of go like the historical fiction route like inside these plays to right. we're dragging these plays into the modern era yeah um into contemporary and i just finished um i keep messing up the title the chosen and the beautiful by nevo which is a great gatsby retelling because it just went public domain it uh is queer and magical and is told from the perspective of Jordan. But I really, I didn't want, a. it's so strict to me, to the original, like it's about how she helps Daisy and Gatsby get together. And I'm like, I wanted more Mm-hmm. Jordan, like I want I a pure spinoff. <laughs> more Jordan being gay in the 1920s and being a golfer yeah. and being this party girl. Like I'm, I'm into her character, but so much of the action of the book is about how do we get 
Daisy and Gatsby together. And like, we already had that and I don't care. Yeah. And I think that that's a good point about like when retelling stick like super, super close to something, Mm -hmm. it gets a little boring, I find. Like I just read um, like just last week finished Travelers Along the Way, which is part of the classics retold series that I forget which publisher is doing it, but it is like an intentional series of retellings of classic literature by various uh, young adult authors. Um, I loved Travelers Along the Way, which is a Robin Hood retelling that is set in the 12th century like crusader states basically it's during the third crusade and the protagonist the the robin hood equivalent is a muslim girl who is there trying to help kick the europeans out of the holy land because they are invading it Mm -hmm. and they need to go home um and she's she's helping out all of these people who are like in the middle of this war and they're like we just live here please (laughs) please stop burning our village richard the lionheart we just live here um and I, I loved it, in part because it was, there were some really clever moments of like, aha, like I, I've spotted what that is. But it also, I didn't know where the plot was going to go exactly. Like it wasn't like, this isn't interesting because I already know what happens, um, which I think is helpful for, for stories like Robin Hood or Arthur that have a lot of component parts and don't even have like one linear tale necessarily they're all part of this same collection like i think that's really fun for authors stories in the universe exactly for authors to go in and mess around with and it was also some of the chapter titles in travelers along the way referenced the animated disney robin hood film which was also just like fun (laughs) because that was one of my favorite favorite movies as a child like that was the movie i came home and watched on repeat and my poor parents but also Thank you for letting me do this because it, it made me probably who I am today. <laughs> also, so I have to ask because I might have just misheard you because mm-hmm. my ears do what they want to do sometimes. You said both the word Arthur. Yes. As in king. king? Okay. Yes. And author as in writer. Okay. I am sorry. Cool. Because yes. my brain latched <laughs> my brain latched on to Arthur because yes. Yes. I love King Arthur retelling <laughs> so much. <laughs> Is this where you tell us about Legendborn? This is where I tell you about Legendborn. Oh my gosh. So I, Legendborn, I've already pre-ordered the sequel for Legendborn. That's how much I love this book. Legendborn is a King Arthur retelling. Um, It's set on a college campus. It's a YA book, but so our main protagonist is still a teenager. Um, She's just in an accelerated program and um, it's beautiful. (laughs) I picked up the book and I was just like, oh, I'm just going to get started on it and then I'll finish it later. I did not move from where I sat on the couch until I finished that book. I was so happy with some of the things that Tracy Dion included in that book that I like actually cried because I was just like, I've never seen this get brought up in uh, like King Arthur retellings. They like to do the same thing over and over and over again. And of course there is a sword in the stone moment in the book, you have to have that. But you get to hear about you know, Knights of the Round Table that you might not have heard about. There so were so many. you get so to hear many. about Yvain? I'm sorry? You get to hear about Yvain in I that book? I believe so. <sighs> it's been a minute. I'm planning on rereading he it. He is my favorite Knight of the Round Table, him and his little lion friend. So there's a knight that they, you can't really track his origins too much because 
it's King Arthur. You don't know where any of these people are. You have are. the French and the Welsh. Yeah, exactly. Over the and his name is Sir Morian. And like his name, he is like the actual literal black knight of the round table. And nobody knows that he exists unless you're like me and you were like 12 and spent hours upon hours reading every article you possibly could about King Arthur. And he's included in the story. And I was like, hey, this is huge. And then the plot twist, when you find out like who's actually the Arthur equivalent character, it's so good. She did such a good job with that book. And I was very happy with it because... One thing that I noticed about King Arthur in movies is that almost every King Arthur movie sucks. Yes, they're so <laughs> they are bad. so bad. Because they don't understand the true, like, soul of King Arthur, yes. I think. Because so, my ideal King Arthur movie is basically Gallivant, but King Arthur. So it's shot in the style. I want something that's like a mockumentary. Yes. Like, I want Arthur saying, in, but in, like, full, like, appropriate medieval dress, mm-hmm. I love all my knights equally. And then it cut away to earlier that day him saying, I don't care for Sir Kay. Like, that's what I want. That's also, so these I people have to... are unhinged. And that's the most important thing to remember about the Knights of the Round Table. Everything's crazy. Like, oh my God. And then so many people are other people's kids. But like, also, it's, it's weird that the Round Table is, it has problems. However, I have to like I haven't watched it yet because I feel like I'm gonna be too emotionally invested in the Green Knight. But from the trailer that I looked at for the movie, from like what I read about it, they fully lean into the like Arthurian weirdness of like, oh yeah, this is actually a magical story as well. There are like wild creatures and things happening here. Because Arthur is a deeply magical story. Literally the entire story is just magic and weird stuff and murder and it's just like nobody cares about that and women distributing swords as a basis for government yes yes sorry Mm -hmm. nobody cares about the lady of the lake except for me and it makes me so mad but (laughs) jeff is like (laughs) i love this podcast i want i want more of morgan lefay actually like i want like a hot magical witch lady rolling in like hello I'm here to ruin everything. Yes. I think that would be fun for me. So (laughs) while Mary Graham (laughs) is working on her movie or her book for Northanger Abbey, I will be writing a King Arthur screenplay that, you know, doesn't try to like overly dude bro the entire movie. This is exactly like the dude broing is exactly the problem. Yes. And we'll all come back here next year. (laughs) Yeah. Because it only takes one year to mm-hmm. write and produce mm-hmm. and all that stuff. And we'll talk about and it. And we'll talk mm-hmm. about your finished works. I'm so excited. Uh, Thank you. Can we talk about fairy tales? Yes. of magic yes so i noted a couple of my favorite fairy tale retellings on here as well uh and i noticed that i for as as much as there are like huge beauty and the beast fan here also cinderella i'm also just like not interested in novels based on those really mm-hmm. anymore or like new ones like Robin McKinley loved Beauty and the Beast so much she wrote two different adaptations which like i need to dig into both of them and i respect that you go Robin McKinley but The newer fairy tale retellings that have been published that have captured my interest have been 
on far less known subjects. So there is a book called Blanca y Roja by Anna Marie McElmore that is a combination retelling of Swan Lake and Snow White and Rose Red. What? And it's, yeah. And it's a, <laughs> it's a YA novel and it's so good. And it's about two sisters who uh, live in a family that is cursed to always have more than one daughter. And one of those daughters will turn into a swan at some point in her life. And like, they will lose her forever. She will be a swan for the rest of her life. What? And you have these two sisters who are determined to figure out how to break this curse. But it's also about colorism in like the Lat- Latina community, which was fascinating. Um, and, and like, it's just such a, a good book. And it's just, there's, there's magic all over it. Mm-hmm. But also, who retells Snow White and Rose Red? Like... That's so. I'm. I need to get that. Book. Yeah. We'll, we will talk. Yes. We own it. We own all of Emery Macklemore's books, as is right and fit. <laughs> um, but then, probably the best fairy tale retelling I read in the past year is *A Rush of Wings* by Laura E. Weymouth, which is the Seven Swans, Twelve Swans. I think sometimes there are a different number of swans. <laughs> um, but How it's many swans? But it's about this girl whose brothers all get turned into swans and so she has to go save them. Um, and in the original, I think it's she has to like not speak for a year. And... Laura Weymouth has written about how this she always loved this fairy tale but it always kind of disturbed her because it was focused on like a woman being silent Mm -hmm. in order to save everything and she was like could I write a version that's about a girl who is just incandescently angry all the time and never shuts up and still saves them and the answer was yes and it was very satisfying do you have another swan book us. Oh god, those are both swan books, aren't they? <laughs> I guess at this point I'm just like, if it's not a swan fairy tale, leave it. I feel like that might be a whole separate episode. <laughs> like, swan books. What do you think about authors and this I don't know if it's just in YA, but you know, you have like Gregory Gregory Maguire, mm-hmm. too, of who, authors who like almost exclusively write mm-hmm. retellings. Like, did Robin McKinley write anything other That's than a retellings? Good question. I mean, she wrote a lot, so the answer is probably yes, but in my heart, I feel like the answer (laughs) answer is is no, (laughs) you know? And I think if you are good at it, you know, I think Mm -hmm. if you understand what you're trying to accomplish with it, it can be very satisfying. Um, So I think the people who are really good at it, like, you go Robin McKinley, like, Mm -hmm. I don't care if you can pull it off, you can pull it off. Um, But Um, yeah. There's an author... I came to because a thousand and one Arabian nights is like one of my favorites. Um, and it's not the wrath and the dawn. It's actually a slightly lesser known book called a thousand nights by an author named EK Johnson. And I'm thinking about her because as you were saying that I was like, Oh yeah, technically she has other books, but I realized that she did, she did a thousand and one nights. Um, and then she actually did a sleeping beauty retelling where um oh let me not get into the details actually because i don't remember them entirely and i was like oh yeah she's done other stuff but i realized that she got tapped to do like star wars books so technically she's actually still doing retellings and reimaginings i just think that it's like her previous work showed that she's really good at like tapping into the voices of characters that have already been established and so she's kind of using that to continue on with the Star Wars books that she's now writing, which are also YA books. I hadn't even thought about intellectual property, like, Mm because that's, like, what people in publishing tend to call it, is, like, when folks write Star Wars novels, that's, like, Mm -hmm. an IP novel. But that's such a good point about, 
the line between that and a retelling or an mm. adaptation very very blurry right we get like that's what we talked about like is it a retelling or are we like just in the universe of this created world Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. how much of the story is there Mm -hmm. part of me is like oh yeah well technically uh, okay no let me just go all the way to the opposite end you'll have people who are saying oh well they're just writing glorified fan fiction right um and that's an argument that we hear all the the time. time but i don't like that because I disagree, <laughs> just to put it simply. <laughs> but I think it takes something to take established characters or an established story mm-hmm. and then rewrite it in a way that is its own story and its own sort of thing. Like what you told me about Eligible, I haven't read it. But if someone were telling me like the little like facets of that story alone, I wouldn't think, oh, Pride and Prejudice, but knowing that it is a Pride and Prejudice retelling makes those little extra like things just seem so much more brilliant to me because it's like, how did Curtis Sinfield even think like, oh, I'm going to just CrossFit in Pride and Prejudice. And I was Her like, fl- <laughs> the flighty daughters, the uh-huh. two youngest daughters, yeah. Lydia, Kitty and Lydia, yeah. uh, they are both into like super CrossFit ineligible. And I feel like it's like this detail that is just so funny. Right. From the original. And I feel like that's a good example of that's not what you would think of as like a one to one. But and yet, have you met a CrossFit person? Yeah. Like they're exactly as annoying as Lydia Bennett. (laughs) And then if that were an original work and he just had these two flighty sisters who did CrossFit, it would not be nearly as brilliant as it is. So I feel like the authors who do these retellings, who do these reimaginings, are actually doing something like really fantastic and also really difficult because you have to take an established character and then make them new. And But that... there are a lot that don't do it well. Either. No, yeah. there are so many <laughs> that don't do that's it well. The Austin when you and... when you rely on everything when you don't put the work in yeah like what worked so well about this robin hood adaptation for me and like i've been telling everyone about this book um what worked so well about travelers along the way for me is that there was so much work that had clearly gone into it like it's written in first person and it was a distinctive first person voice because it is very easy for me to burn out on ya first person if it all sounds the same but it's like this was a very distinctive voice and the like amount of research that had gone into the the historical detail was just beautiful and like yeah it hit some really satisfying and clever like Mm -hmm. plot points that matched but it wasn't you know someone was like expecting the robin hood legend to do the heavy lifting Mm -hmm. and that's what made it so brilliant and actually allowed the robin hood legend to do some of the heavy lifting paradoxically and I hate to talk about Pride and Prejudice constantly no 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 no. you're in the right company for this I read other (laughs) books as well but Aisha at last mm-hmm. is a Pride and Prejudice retelling by an author. She's Canadian, Uzma Jalaluddin, and it's set in the Muslim community mm-hmm. in modern day Toronto. And it uses the framework, mm-hmm. but it doesn't like, there's not a one for one match of the characters. Like there's some characters that are kind of combined characters. The relationships don't always mm-hmm. exactly match up. And I think that, though she still brings like the heart to the story. Mm-hmm. I liked it so much. That is also one of my like go-to recommendations when on desk people ask me mm-hmm. for something. Um, it's, it's I would say, probably considered a romance, but it's very, like it's very sweet mm-hmm. and it's very light. Yeah. 
I feel like that's what I've heard. I've heard about a lot of Austin adaptations where people have said to me, like, turn the Austin part of your brain off, actually. They're like, read Aisha at last because it's a great book. Read it as a great book and less as a Pride and Prejudice retelling, right. and you'll probably enjoy it more, yes. which mm-hmm. I find interesting. Whereas with Eligible, it sounds like, no, read it with your Pride and Prejudice brain all the way on. I think that hits it on the head, yeah. So, Do you have a, like a fairy tale or a myth or something that you would like to see? Or you don't really focus on the or any sort of classic piece of literature that you would want to see retold or reimagine that you think would be fun? That's a good question. I'm not sure that I do. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes also I have read a lot of novels that then later you're like, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. Cold Mountain. That's the Odyssey. Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think that there, I mean, I think that there are so many retellings. Like once you start looking at lists of mm-hmm. like what books are retellings, you're like, oh, yeah. Oh, that's. That's a retelling, too. Mm. Although I sometimes wonder, because I looked at a lot of those lists preparing for this episode, and I sometimes wonder, like, is it, or do you just call every star-crossed lover Romeo and Juliet? (laughs) Right. Whereas, so one of those books that I sat up and went, wait, was another book that I read for my honors thesis, which is called Dreamers Often Lie. And I picked it up because it's about, it's set in the present day, it's about a high schooler who suffers a traumatic brain injury and starts hallucinating Shakespeare characters. Which already, like, yes, sign me up. I am sucked in. But the more, the further I got into it and the more time I spent, like, working, like, having to dive very deeply into it, I was like, this is an extremely clever Romeo and Juliet adaptation Mm -hmm. because it did not hit me over the head with the fact that it is a Romeo and Juliet adaptation. At no point is that mentioned in the marketing or the cover copy or any of it. But you start to think about, like, the characters' names and the choices they're making. And you're Mm -hmm. like, oh, actually I can plot out act for act what matches up between the play and this book and that was so satisfying because it was like a little treasure hunt (laughs) and it was one of those things that's like yeah this is a good book on its own but like with eligible layer in Mm -hmm. put on your Romeo and Juliet brain and it becomes extremely enjoyable so there's this book and we have it here and I know that we have it here because I literally read it in a single death shift it was it's a short book Um, but I was it's called comfort me with apples um, by Catherine M. Valente. <gasps> it great. is a, I didn't realize until part of the way through the book that I was reading a sort of Genesis creation story retelling as a horror story. What? And <laughs> I'm so glad that this was a short death shift because... I would have been really bad at my job if anybody walked up when I was reading that book because I was engrossed. And then when it was over, I was just like, what did I just read? But in a good way, yeah. because I like weird, creepy little books. And that was, in fact, like quite literally a weird, creepy little book. And it was so good. And I did not know what I was getting into until I was too far gone to stop or turn back. Catherine I think Valente, man. <laughs> I have been trying to make my way through Deathless for ages now, which is another Russian folklore fairy tale retelling mm-hmm. of Kloshai the Deathless. And the reason it's taking me years is not because it's not good, but because it's so good that I'm like, I don't want it to end. And I also don't have five hours to devote mm-hmm. to this book all at once, which feels like the only correct way to read it. But like, Catherine Valente, she knows what's up. Yeah. And I also think of like loose retellings too. So um, Lovecraft Country is now made popular, especially by the HBO series, which 
does not follow the books very closely, the book itself very closely, but I read the book and I loved it. It It's an amazingly written book and I don't know if people would really actually sort of qualify it as Lovecraft retellings, but I definitely will say that it feels like a reimagining to me um as i read it and it kind of was a really once again (laughs) gateway drug sort of conversation into that sort of eldritch horror like thing which is a huge like genre in of itself not just because of like lovecraft but all of the people that he inspired because there are people who will have very good reservations about reading lovecraft (laughs) i mean yeah (laughs) which you should go back to mexican gothic and (laughs) sylvia garcia moreno who takes a lot of those criticisms and and addresses them in a really fulfilling way so there's there's just there's something here for everyone in my opinion um did you say, oh, yeah, Northanger Abbey. Northanger Abbey, but <laughs> even possibly more importantly, Love's Labor's Lost. Everyone stop sleeping on my favorite underrated Shakespeare comedy about four Elizabethan frat boys and the women who are smarter than them. <laughs> this is begging for a book set at college about four bros who love each other a lot and are bros and make this pact to swear off like women and booze and fun. And then four... I've been actually trying to come up with some kind of modern adaptation myself for ages where I'm also like, this isn't gay enough. This is too many. This feels for, like for a- women and for men, that's too many straight people for something I would write. So I've got to figure out how to make it gayer. But like, <laughs> this, this once is- I figured out how to make it gay, it's over for everyone. This is a small screen adaptation waiting to happen. It is. Like, I've been literally, really I've Australian. literally been trying to write this I web series this since I was in college. Head. Like you like, said it, and like the image was right? there, right? Yeah, and so you need in the dorm room. Exactly. You need four yeah. women who show up for whatever reason and are like, "This is literally the stupidest <laughs> thing I've ever heard," and we're gonna have so much. fun fun trolling you and then they do and then these guys are like will you go out with us and then they're like no have you seen yourselves like ask us in a year like i'm just saying it's right there guys it's right we don't need to adapt romeo and juliet again even though it's my favorite tragedy we need to adapt the himbo elizabethan frat boys oh my god yes (laughs) please anything but romeo and juliet anything but romeo and juliet (laughs) so all of you troilus and cressida fans out there Yes. Roddy would rather read your adaptation. Or Pyramus and Thisbe. Just, there's a wall. Where? Speaking Midsummer of, like, exactly. Like, there are <laughs> Midsummer adaptations out there. I've yet to find one that truly speaks to my soul. But a good Midsummer adaptation They gotta be lean a into thing the weird. You, that's exactly they the thing. They have to lean you into have the to, weird. Especially because, like... What even is the point of that play? And mm. I say it is it is one of my very favorite plays, but literally Puck comes out at the end and goes, That was wild, wasn't it? Good night, everybody. Like <laughs> Great. Did you read Nutshell by Ian McEwen? No. Okay, so But I knew you wanted to talk about, about Weird Shakespeare. It's Hamlet told from the perspective of an unborn baby. So he's hanging out there <laughs> learning about how his uncle killed his father? Yes. Fantastic. And they are fighting over a London brownstone what do they have you know like a town home and he is trying to figure out what he can do about it as a peanut (laughs) in trudy's belly interesting and if it sounds kind of icky it is (laughs) but (laughs) but it's also like so bold and so like it just dives right into it 
And I think like Ian McEwan is one of my favorite like historic fictional authors. Mm-hmm. And so he he understands how kind of gross and icky it is. Yeah. And with the creativity, just kind of embraces all of it. I there's another Hamlet adaptation that I started reading and then it was on the Lucky Day shelf and I had to give it back. And it's called The King of Infinite Space by Lindsay Fay, which is also Hamlet, but set in like the New York theater world, which makes it extremely Mary Graham catnip. Um, And Lindsay Fay has also written a Jane Eyre sort of inspired. It's not quite a straight up adaptation because the novel Jane Eyre exists within the world of this book. But it's like, what if Jane Eyre, but with more murder? What if when her cousin tried to hit her, she pushed him and he hit his head and died? And then every time she came across an inconvenient man for the rest of her life, she just killed him and he stopped being inconvenient. Oh, my God. So, like, she's just a a serial killer. (laughs) Basically, she doesn't really mean for it to happen, but she's like, well. Do they ever? Yes, they do. (laughs) I'm like, like, but she's like, well, the easiest way to make my problems go away is going to be to kill this guy. And I mean, it really is that John Mulaney, do you want me to kill that guy for you? Because it sounds like it sucks and I would totally kill that guy for you. So that book is called Jane Steele. Um, Does she kill Mr. Rochester? No. Why not? Well, he doesn't have a a wife in the attic in this Is that the retelling you would write? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But it would need to be like the most messed up, like she loves him, but she has to kill him. Yes. And she has to kill him because she loves him. It's the, I love that angst. I need that. That's what I would need. This feels like your collaboration project coming together (laughs) as we speak. Frankly, every podcast we're on feels like that now. (laughs) Oh my goodness. My face hurts. I've just been just smiling for like 50 minutes now. I have to give one last shout out to uh, sort of a, a literature, work of literature adaptation, um, which is The Light Between Worlds, also by Laura Weymouth, which you could argue is a little bit of a Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe retelling, Ooh. but is much more interested in the question of, so what happens when you fall back through a wardrobe after being kings and queens of a second world mm-hmm. and have to like go through puberty again? I would die. Yes. And so you have one sister who wants to like stop thinking about it, sort of the Susan character. Mm-hmm. And you have another sister, the Lucy character, who's desperate to get back to the yeah. second also, world. Also, C.S. Lewis did Susan dirty. I just have C.S. to throw Lewis, that out there. He, C.S. Lewis was trying did to, to do a thing with Susan that he should have known better because he tried to give Susan his own personal narrative arc. Mm-hmm. But Jack... No eight-year-old reading this book is going to know that you became an atheist in your teens and then came back to the church. No one's going to know you're Susan, man, and that that's your self-insert. Yeah. So I need, I need get it together. to go back and do it over again. Get it together. So, well, then you would love this book <laughs> okay, because it takes, good. like, the thing that I love about Laura Weymouth is that she loves the Narnia books. And mm-hmm. so she actually gets it because, like, you'll, you'll hear, like, Philip Pullman mortal enemy of mine philip pullman um (laughs) that's that's actually okay that's a bit extreme i just feel i just feel like his readings of lewis are rather willfully misinterpreted uh so he's like you know susan gets confined to hell no she doesn't she just doesn't die on the train she stays she stays on earth she doesn't (laughs) phil tell me where it says she's going to hell right please mr oxford point out in the text cite cite your page so anyway and so it annoys me when philip pullman pullman critiques the narnia books because i'm like you have decided that you just don't like these because you don't like c.s lewis and a lot of other things whereas laura weymouth is like oh no i love c.s lewis it was was 
wrong about some stuff, so we're just going to go fix that. But she's got this affection for it that I think lends a lot of depth to The Light Between Worlds because you know that she's not like, this is trash and we're throwing out. It's like, let's talk about what's going on here. Let's think through the implications (laughs) of some of this in a way that I really appreciated. I have to say that if I were to pick my retelling that I want to happen, one would have to be the Lady of the Lake because I know... I know her story's been told before, but that is one of the most complicated figures in Arthurian legend. And I just want it to be weird and I want somebody to have fun with it. And it might be me. Do you want Uh, it to be in print or do you want it to be like a movie or screen adaptation? I would want it to be in print. I will want to give like an entire like... 435 page book. I just pulled well, that number out of nowhere. really lush prose. <laughs> that was such a Like, I feel like she deserves really beautiful yeah, writing. Like, I just, yeah. So just purple prose everywhere. Yes. Just talking. Yeah. And are well, you going to write this or do you have an author in mind that you're, you know, pitching? <laughs> it might be me. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I trust myself enough, but we'll see. And then just to like, I have to like give like very small Roddy, like a shout out right now because the other one, which I don't know if anyone would ever be able to do well, I don't know if any exists, but her favorite fairy tale when she was little was the 12 Dancing Princesses. And it's one of, it's so cool. You're telling me that these sisters go out every night. <laughs> And they party. They party hard. <laughs> like, every night. Their father is furious. This man is killing people over this. And no one can figure it out. In my creative writing class in college, I tried to write, like, kind of that dark, dangerous, screwed up, fairy tale type retelling of 12 Dancing Princesses because I was similarly obsessed with it. There are a number of t- retellings we have back in, like, Children's and YA. Mm-hmm. But I would love to see like a geared more towards adults yes like kind of messed up like i need that (laughs) i need it (laughs) so yeah that's that's mine those are my two we didn't even (laughs) talk a lot about like mashups what mashups did you have in mind i really enjoyed home fire by camilla shamsi and it is a oedipus Antigone mashup with like Brexit happening. (gasps) What? And (laughs) um, some very interesting race politics, politics, race politics, Brexit politics. And it is short and powerful. And I don't think to enjoy it, you really like, I think people who are familiar with the, the origins of those stories would enjoy it. And I think people who have no knowledge of that would also mm-hmm. enjoy this book. Yeah. Very good book club book too, mm-hmm. if anybody needs mm-hmm. a book club book. I guess for like mashups, or honestly, it's like a, I don't know, it's the Witcher series. I, I've mentioned it Toss on the podcast before. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> You're fine. Um, I'm good. That's- so many of the encounters, so many of the stories in the Witcher series are just fairy tale retellings. And I love it. It's so much fun. And it's action-packed. And, you know, the TV show is led by a really good-looking guy with a sword. So, like, what more do you When need? I look at, like, normal-looking Henry Cavill, I'm like, okay, sure. Mm-hmm. Like, he's a little 
too perfect looking. Mm-hmm. But like you put some long hair on him and toss him in some dirt in the right. winter, and it's, <laughs> it's like I'm dirt. paying attention. The dirt does so much. But it's not doing in a real lot of life. Work. Please take a shower. <laughs> <laughs> this is only a fantasy thing. Um, also, uh, just another quick few shout outs to Fables by Bill Willingham, which is my favorite graphic novel series, mm-hmm. um, which is literally as it's told, fairy tale creatures all come to a city, basically like a neighborhood in New York. I think it's supposed to be and they are led. They have a mayor, but their sheriff is the big bad wolf because everyone hates him equally. And he and Snow White are basically kind of reliving Beauty and the Beast because they're in love with each other. Also, her Prince Charming is everyone else's Prince Charming. He's been married like three times. (laughs) It's great. Real Into the Woods vibes. (laughs) Basically, yeah. So like she was his first wife and then it's a lot. But I really like it. Just throwing that out there. And then with my King Arthur retellings, there's Once in Future by Karen Gillan, which is also a graphic novel series and basically um, set... In the United Kingdom, some supremacists who are very upset with how diverse England is decide that they're going to resurrect zombie King Arthur only for them to forget that King Arthur's mortal enemies were the Saxons. So he looks at them because he's a zombie with magic powers and he's like, Anglo-Saxon, you're dead, which was beautiful. I was just like, thank you, because no one remembers that part of his, they were his mortal enemies. Anyway, sorry, but it doesn't just focus on him. There's so many other still like European based mythology, but you know, you get Grindel, you get Gwen the Green Knight, you get everything just kind of like mixed up and it's real fun and it's confusing for you, but it's also confusing for the characters who have to take on these legends to try to stop zombie king arthur from taking over the world but it's great i laughed also one of the main characters is an old woman who lives in like a retirement home who's just like i have a cache of weapons in the forest we gotta go kill these fairies that are attacking her she's great her name's bridget and i love her (laughs) so yeah those are my (laughs) real quick shout outs (sighs) anything else I covered everything on my list. All right. Well, now we can naturally do the outro. (laughs) (laughs) You have listened to another episode of A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast, brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each episode is by a local musician, John Duffy. If you'd like to support this podcast, visit ferndalefriends.org or remember to rate, review, or follow us. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it to social media. We'll be back next week with more. Thanks for listening. And viewers like you. (laughs) Thank you.